0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book, 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick.
1: Good to be with you. Well, please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're currently in our series called Grace and Truth, which has been our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through this amazing book. We're getting towards the end, but we've still got several studies left to go. So today, we're in the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Would you please bow your heads with me? And let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you your God who loves us and desires to speak to us. And Lord, we come now with expectant hearts, Lord, expecting and ready to receive what you have in your word for us this morning to encourage us, to instruct us, and to shape and guide our thoughts, our hearts, and our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to receive everything that you have for us from this scripture this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes when somebody's thinking about doing something, that's maybe risky or even reckless, people will often encourage them to do it by saying, hey, you only live once. You should definitely quit your job. You should definitely buy that thing you can't afford because, hey, bro, you only live once. You should take that trip. You should do all the things. Now, sometimes that's a good message because some people... Spend their lives not doing anything, and that maybe they should do more things, right? Maybe they need to be encouraged that, hey, you know, you've only got one shot at this. Why don't you do some more things? Nobody's going to get to the end of their life and say, you know, I really wish I would have spent more time just doom scrolling on Instagram or whatever it is that they do all night long, right? Nobody's going to be like, I, I wish I would have spent less time with my family doing cool things and more time, you know, sitting in my office reading articles. For some people, that can be a good encouragement. You know, hey, you only live once. Get out there, do some stuff. But here's what I've noticed: this seems like weird advice. You only live once, therefore you should do this. And here's why it's weird advice: because you can also take that same logic and go the other direction, right? You can apply it in the exact opposite way. With the same words, right? So you could say, hey, you only live once, so don't take any risks at all. Don't risk anything. Like, all you've got is one chance at this. Make sure you get some extra locks on your door. Don't fly on airplanes. Don't drive in cars they could break. Don't take the stairs because you could fall, right? Like, don't spend your money. You might need it at some point. Just watch out for everything and lock yourself in your house and don't do anything because you only live once. So don't take any risks because you don't want to mess this thing up, right? You've only got one shot at it, so be as careful as possible, right so it can kind of go both ways. Um, another thing about this kind of you only live once mentality that I've noticed is that a lot of people they take it and it makes it makes them act selfishly, so they'll be like, "Hey, you only live once. I've literally you know counseled and met with people who say, "I'm leaving my spouse, I'm leaving my family because you only live once. I don't want to spend it with these losers. I want to go do some fun things, right and, Taking care of other people? No way, man. You only live once. I want to go do some stuff for myself. You know, sometimes people who have this you only live once mentality are unwilling to be generous or unwilling to share their time or their money with other people because they'll say to themselves, since this life is all I've got and you only live once, I don't want to waste my time and my money on other people. I don't want to spend my things on ways that don't benefit me. But you know, as Christians, we have something which sets us free from the selfishness of this kind of thinking and which sets us free from fear, fears of all kinds, the fear of missing out and the fear of messing up. What we have as Christians that sets us free is we have the hope and the expectation of the resurrection. And as we're going to see in our passage today in 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 12 through 34, what we're going to see is that when you have the hope of the resurrection, not only does it set you free, it also empowers you. It empowers you to be generous, to be thoughtful, to, to step out and take risks, not from a fear of missing out, but because the hope of the resurrection means that it's okay to try something even if you fail because this life is not all there is. You see, because this life is not all there is, because of the resurrection, this life, you know what it's like? It's like the preface to the true story that is being written. And so our belief in the resurrection is not only that Jesus resurrected, but we believe that Jesus' resurrection has specific meaning and significance for our lives as well, here and now, and that's what we're going to talk about today in these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The title of today's message is, What Jesus' Resurrection Means for You. And our summary sentence this week, here's what we're going to see in this passage. Every week I give you a summary sentence, takeaway truth. I'd love it if you'd write it down. This is going to be our outline for studying this passage. We'll break it down and use it to go through the passage. But it's a kind of standalone summary sentence. So I'd love it if you'd take a picture of it, write it in your notes. And you know, as you do that each week, you're going to look back someday and you're going to have this record of all the things we've studied in each passage. It'll be cool. So here is the summary sentence, our outline for this This week, the fact that Jesus resurrected means that in him, there is hope for us beyond the grave. And this hope alone gives meaning and direction to our lives. One more time, the fact that Jesus resurrected means that in him there is hope for us beyond the grave, and this hope alone gives meaning and direction to our lives. So let's take that sentence and break it down as we study our passage today. First part, the fact that Jesus resurrected. The section begins in verse 12 where it says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. So, in the previous verses in this chapter, which we studied last week, Paul laid out the case for why you can be absolutely sure that Jesus did, in fact, resurrect from the dead. He pointed us to, in those previous verses, he pointed us to the scriptural evidence. He pointed us also to the eyewitness evidence. And Paul explained to us that Jesus' resurrection, it is not a tertiary truth. It is not a secondary doctrine. It is not an optional thing. Rather, the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential. It's an essential element to the gospel, the gospel being that message of the good news of what Jesus has done to save us. In other words, what Paul would say is, you cannot preach the gospel without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no good news of salvation in Jesus. You see, if Jesus had merely lived a good life and then died, that would not be good news for you and me. Even if, let's take it a step further, even if Jesus had died for your sins, but he wasn't resurrected, That, too, would not be good news for us either. See, without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Now, why is that? Now, somebody might push back against that and say, look, even if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, like literally, right, that wouldn't take away from the fact that he was a great teacher and a wonderful example, and he lived a good life, and he touched a lot of people, and he died as a martyr. So they might say a martyr for peace and love. Now, some people might might again go one step further and say, "Well, if Jesus atoned for our sins through his death, isn't that enough? Why is it necessary that he resurrected physically and literally from the dead?" Now, Paul's going to answer that question here in this section. But first, you need to understand the context. Right, what's going on here? Why is Paul writing these things in this letter in this place? Why is Paul writing the Corinthians about Jesus' resurrection? Is it because the Corinthian Christians did not believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead? No, that's not why. They did. Look at verse eleven, the verse right before this. He's talking about Jesus' resurrection, and he says, "This is what we preach." and this is what you believed. So the Corinthian Christians did believe that Jesus resurrected. So why is Paul bringing this up? Why is he making this big argument for how they can be sure that Jesus actually resurrected? Well, the reason becomes clear as we read the rest of the verse there in verse 12. So let's read the whole thing this time. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, there were some people who are going around saying that there is no resurrection. What we would put in our terms today, they were saying there's no such thing as life after death. They are saying once you die, that's it, right? Game over. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200, right? You're done. It's uh, done and dusted, lights out forever. So in their opinion, what is Christianity about? Well, they would say Christianity, you know, is a, a set of great principles that can help you to live a good life, but when it comes to talking about heaven and hell, or life after death, or being reunited with those who have passed away, they would say, nah, you know, that's fairy tale stuff that's going a little bit too far. There's no such thing as life after death. We're cool with following Jesus. We just don't believe there's anything after this life. <clears throat> now, most likely, those who held this opinion had been influenced either by Greek philosophy or by some Jewish groups who did not believe in, in the resurrection or in life after death. One of these groups, the most famous of these groups, was called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group in Judaism at that time who were what we would call theologically liberal. And here's what that means. They didn't believe that the Bible was completely uh, inspired by God. They believed some parts were inspired by God, but other parts weren't. And they didn't believe in anything supernatural, right? So they didn't believe in miracles. um, And therefore, they believed that when you die, that's it, there's nothing else. No heaven, no hell, no life after death. And that's why, you ready for a really bad joke? That's why they were sad, you see, see? See, I don't even... I feel bad about myself saying that joke. Like, I said it in the first service, and I said, I'm not going to tell this to the second service, because that is just a terrible joke. And then a bunch of people came up and said, I love that joke, which is crazy, because sometimes I think I have some okay jokes that people don't like, and then they like this one. I don't know. All right, listen. For the Sadducees, being Jewish was all about national identity and trying to be a good person and living a good life here and now, because in their view, This is all there is, this life. There's nothing after this. Now, they were also perhaps influenced by some forms or strands of Greek philosophy that were popular at this time. There were some influential branches of Greek philosophy at this time which viewed your body, your physical body, as a prison in which your soul was trapped until you die. And then when you die, right, your soul is released from the prison of your body and goes on existing forever, kind of just floating around in the ether as a disembodied spirit. So for them, the idea that you would be resurrected in a new physical body, they would say that's that's crazy talk. Why would anybody want that? The body's a prison for your soul. And so because of all these influences, some of the Corinthian Christians had come to believe, and they were teaching others, that when you die, that's it. This life is all there is. You know, they might say, Jesus taught some good things. He died for our sins. But there's no such thing as life after death. That's what they were going around teaching. But Paul says, hey, no, no, no. Wait a second. You believe, do you not, that Jesus resurrected from the dead? And they would have said, yeah, we believe that. And Paul said, in a literal, physical, glorified body. And they said, yeah, yeah, right. And Paul said, and and furthermore, you know that the Old Testament scriptures teach the resurrection of the dead. And you know that Jesus himself talked a lot about the resurrection from the dead and eternal life, life after death. And so he said, so how can you say that there's no life after death? Where are you getting this from? So by reminding the, Christian, the Corinthian Christians about the evidence that Jesus really, truly resurrected, Paul is wanting to explain to help them understand that there is indeed life after death and what we should do to prepare ourselves for it. So that brings us to the second part of our sentence. The fact that Jesus resurrected, here's what it means. It means that in him there is hope for us beyond the grave. Now, from verses 13 to 19, Paul is going to tell us what is at stake. Like, why is it actually important that the resurrection really happened? What is at stake if it didn't happen? And so he's going to essentially say in these verses, okay, just for the sake of argument, let's say, what if there is no life after death? What if there is no resurrection of the dead? And he's going to give us a list of the implications if that's true. First, he says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if there is no life after death, then Jesus must not have really resurrected. But if Jesus was resurrected, then there's proof and there is a precedent that there is, in fact, such a thing as life after death. But let's continue with his logic. So verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, because, now go down to verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, and, verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Jesus' resurrection matters, for several reasons. Here's one of them. It is the proof that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, that he really is the Messiah, that he really is God come to us in human flesh to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to save us and redeem us. You know, during his years of ministry, on multiple occasions, people would ask Jesus, Jesus, how can we know for sure that you really are who you say you are? I mean, you make all these amazing claims, right? That you're the door through which people must pass to go to God, right? That you are the good shepherd, right? That you that before Abraham was, you were. By the way, did you know our next series we're going to do after this? It's going to be a series looking at Jesus' claims about himself in the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. This is, listen, so Jesus made all these amazing claims. How can we know for sure that he really is the Messiah? That he really is God come to earth in human flesh? Jesus said well, I'll give you one sign, and here's what it is. One day, I'm going to die. And when I die, set your clock, because three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave. I'm going to resurrect. And so that's pretty specific, right? Pretty verifiable. So if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then either he was wrong, or he was lying and he knew it. But either way, it would mean that Jesus is no different than anyone else who's ever lived and then died. And If that's the case, we don't need to believe his claim that he's the Messiah. Because if Jesus was defeated by death, if death defeated Jesus, then Jesus isn't God. And if Jesus isn't God, he's not able to save us from our sins. And if he's not able to save us from our sins, then we still stand condemned, subject to judgment, and we have no hope. Furthermore, verse 15, we are to be found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then the apostles are all liars, and everybody who follows Jesus is a fool. Because, Paul says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there is no hope beyond the grave, then Christians are fools. Because to follow Jesus, you know what it involves? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. To follow Jesus involves laying down your life, giving up your own desires, giving over control of your life for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. It involves things like enduring suffering, enduring offense in order to build up the body of Christ, in order to carry out Christ's mission in the world. And the reward for this, even Jesus told us, will not be given to us in this life. So if there is no life after death, if this is all there is and there's nothing after it, we are pitiable fools sacrificing our lives for nothing when instead we could be carrying on for our own immediate pleasures rather than living for heavenly rewards. And yet, Paul says in verse 20, that is not the case because, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, Jesus' resurrection wasn't just an isolated event, right? It isn't just good for him, he defeated death, and that's it, right? It's just something he did. No, no Jesus' resurrection was not an isolated event, rather, it was the beginning of something much bigger. Paul refers to it as the first fruits like in a garden or in a farmer's field. It, you plant your seeds and you wait. And then we, the first fruits are the, is that first batch of produce that is produced. And those first fruits, you know what they are? They're not a sign that the harvest is over and there won't be anything else. No, no, the first fruits are the sign that the harvest is just about to begin, that the harvest is just around the corner, and there's a lot more like this on the way. So Jesus' resurrection wasn't just his own personal triumph over death. His resurrection was a preview of coming attractions. It was a sign of what is to come. So just as Jesus resurrected to new life in a physical, glorified body, so we too will be resurrected to new life in physical, glorified bodies. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Just as Adam was our forerunner, the pioneer who went before us and paved the way for us to follow, the only problem is all of us have followed in the way that he paved, and that way has led to sin, death, and destruction. But now we have Jesus, Our new pioneer, paving a different way for us. He has gone before us and paved the way for resurrection and new life, eternal life. Now, both Adam and Jesus were representatives, is what this verse is saying. They were representatives whose actions had implications for all those who came after them. Now, we are in Adam by nature. We we are born into connection with Adam. But in order to be born into connection with Jesus, you have to be born again. In order to be in Christ, you have to be born again. Notice what it says in verse 22. In Christ shall all be made alive. Now, this is an interesting verse, verse 22, because some people look at this and they say, wait, wait a second. So is logically it's saying that just as Adam's actions had implications which affected all people universally— then does that mean that Jesus's actions also had universal application? Meaning that just as in Adam, all people came under condemnation, in the same way because of Jesus's actions, therefore all people, whether they want it or not, will be redeemed and raised up to new life. Well, the answer is no. That's not what this is saying. But it does mean this. See, here's the thing you do need to know. Everyone will be resurrected. But not everyone will be resurrected to eternal life. So if you look at John chapter 5, verse 29, Jesus is speaking there, and he says, Everyone will be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to the resurrection of, to life, and others will be resurrected to the resurrection to judgment. In the book of Acts, for, chapter 24, we read about the resurrection, how there will be a resurrection of all people, both the unjust and the just. So all people who have ever lived will be resurrected to stand before God on Judgment Day. The question is whether you will be resurrected to eternal life or to judgment. In other words, no matter who you are, at the end of this life, it is not the end of you. When your life here on earth, your physical body dies, that is not the end of you, no matter who you are. All of us will stand before God to give an account of what we did with our lives. The difference is that those who have put their trust and faith in Jesus and what he did for you to save you, if that's you, then when you stand before God, you know what you will have? You will have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, right, who has given his righteousness to you. It's been imputed to you, paid to your account because of your faith and trust, your reception of His grace. And so you will have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, on that day when you stand before God. On the other hand, those who have not put their faith in Jesus, they will stand before God on their own, without an advocate, on the day of judgment. Which is why I would would plead with anyone who isn't sure where they're at with God, that today you can know, right? You can settle that issue in your heart and your mind. You can put that to rest. You can put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and through him be reconciled to God, forgiven and declared righteous with a righteousness that is not your own by your own works, by your own doing, but one which comes through faith in him. So all will be resurrected, some to eternal life, some to judgment. So we need to make sure that we're ready for that. But here in this section, just understand, Paul is specifically referring to those who will be resurrected to eternal life. He's not really talking uh, about those who will be resurrected to judgment just because he's speaking to believers and he's talking about those who will be resurrected to eternal life. Now, you can tell that by looking at verse 23. Look at what it says in verse 23. But each in its own order, Christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to Christ so jesus has been the first fruits of those raised from the dead to new and everlasting life and when he returns we too will be raised now this is described for us in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 and 17 where it says this for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. In verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now by saying that Jesus is the first fruits of those who will be resurrected, understand that doesn't mean that Jesus is the first person to ever be raised from death to life. We read about several people in the Bible, actually, like in 1 Kings chapter 17. We read about a widow who had a son who died, and Elijah the prophet came, and the power of God through Elijah caused him to come back to life. Uh, In the Gospel of John chapter 11, we read about Lazarus, who was a friend of Jesus. He died, and he was brought back to life. You know, I just think about Lazarus, right? He must have been bummed out, right? There he is in the presence of the Lord, enjoying it. And then he gets, like, yanked back down to earth. And if you remember the verse, do you remember that verse? It's one of my favorite uh, verses in the Bible. It says, Jesus, you should have come. It's been four days, and by now our brother stinks. Right? It says uh, in the King James, it says, he stinketh. This is wonderful, King James English. You know, here he is in heaven, and then all of a sudden, oh, great. Here I am back in the stinky body where I was before. I thought I got away from this thing. And then guess what? A few years later, he had to die again. What a bummer, Right? bad enough to die once. you got to die twice. You know, in all those other cases where people were brought from death to life, you see, those people were brought back to life in their same body. And eventually, they had to die again a few years later. None of them are around right now. Jesus' resurrection was different. Jesus was resurrected into a glorified body. We're going to talk more about that next week in our study, looking at the end of this chapter. What will our glorified bodies be like? That's what we'll look at next week. But Jesus was resurrected into a glorified body, never to die again. Verse 24 begins like this. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, the Bible tells us what is God's ultimate plan for all of history. In other words, God is causing all of history. There's a direction, there's a trajectory, there's a goal, there's an aim. It's all building up towards and working towards something. What is it? Here's what it is. God's ultimate plan. Everything that's all building up towards is this. When the moment, when in the fullness of time, God will unite all things in him, in Christ things in heaven and things on earth. That's what Paul's describing here in 1 Corinthians 15, how all of world history is moving towards and building up to this point when Jesus will sit on the throne and rule as king over all the universe for all of eternity. And he will do this, it says there at the end of that same verse, verse 24, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So right now in the world, right, there, there are different bodies, if you will, or different entities which have some degree of power and authority, right? So some human beings and human institutions have a measure or a degree of authority or power. Even demonic forces, even Satan has been allowed to have some degree of authority or power in the world as it stands right now. But that authority is temporary, It will not always be this way. There is a time coming, it says here, when Jesus will take his rightful place as, it says in in 1 Timothy 6, as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In other words, Jesus' resurrection was important. And here's why. It was essentially, it was like the first domino in a domino effect. It was the, the event which set in motion a series of events which will happen one after another, the one leading to the next, which will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth, which is how the Bible describes heaven. Look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In other words, All of human history has a trajectory. It's going somewhere. It's building up to something. The thing it's building up to is this point when God is going to abolish death forever. And those who are in Christ, every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. That, my friends, that is the hope of the gospel. Resurrection, eternal life, heaven. Heaven. Right? That is the hope that we have in Jesus. And the reason you can be sure that that will really happen is because Jesus resurrected and he is the first fruits. And the promise Jesus gave, do you remember it? What he said to Lazarus' sister there at the tomb before he raised him from the grave, he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What an important question. That's a question that you need to sit with and think through today if you haven't yet. Not only is this the truth, the hope of the gospel, but in order for you to receive it, you need to believe it. So that's the question. Do you believe it? The promise and the hope of the gospel is that for those who trust in Jesus, death doesn't get the final word. This life is not all there is. In Jesus, there is hope beyond the grave. And in this last section, we're going to look at, okay, so what is that? How does that work out practically in our lives? How does it change your day tomorrow? How does it look like moving forward? So that brings us to the last part of our sentence, which is this. The fact that Jesus resurrected means that in him there is hope for us beyond the grave, and this hope alone gives meaning and direction to our lives. In verses 29 through 34, Paul is going to ask a series of rhetorical questions to press home the practical implications of how belief in the resurrection gives meaning and direction to our lives. So let's, let's look at this. First he says, verse 29, otherwise, if there is no resurrection, then why do people get baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their, on their behalf? Good question. Let's move on, right? Like, no, I'm just kidding. You guys probably want (laughs) to You probably want to hear something about that, right? All right, listen. For a lot of people, it's a pretty weird verse, okay? Uh, confusing verse. What is he talking about? Like, is he suggesting or, or telling us that we need to get baptized on behalf of the dead? It seems kind of weird. It's like the only verse in the Bible that talks about this. The Mormon Church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they take this verse, and based on this verse, they do this, right? So this is why they're so into genealogy. They go into their genealogy, they find out who their ancestors were, and they essentially get baptized, like, in absentia for their uh, deceased loved ones. But I want you to notice a few things about this passage. Notice that Paul is not recommending this practice. He's not saying that we should do this. He's just stating that some people do it. Um, the, the thing here, you'll notice he refers to it as something that other people do, right? So he's not saying that this is something that we do or something that you do. He says something that People do, whoever they are. You know, they're not us, but there's other people out there who do this. You see, historical scholars tell us that the practice of being baptized for the dead was a pagan practice. It wasn't a Christian practice. Now, you might say, but it's in the Bible. Well, yeah, it's in the Bible, mentioned as a pagan practice that pagans did, not as something that Christians did. And here's what Paul's saying with this verse, and here's his whole point. He's saying, look, even your pagan neighbors— believe that there is life after death. Otherwise, they wouldn't get baptized for the dead. And and Paul's saying, of course there's life after death. The Bible teaches it. Jesus promised it. And it's just so deeply ingrained in the heart and mind of every human being that even, even people who don't know God, they have a sense that there must be more than just this life. And the evidence of that is even the pagans get baptized for the dead. They believe that there's life after death. And now Paul uses his own life in the next few verses to uh, give an example of the practical implications of the hope of eternal life. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Uh, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Think about it like this for the person who does not have the hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life through Jesus, for that person, the good moments in this life, that is as good as it will ever get. So I hope you enjoyed it, right? You remember that time the Broncos won the Super Bowl a couple years ago? Hope you liked it, because it's pretty much downhill from there, right? It's just, that was it. It's all downhill from there, right? But, but for the person who who does have the hope of the resurrection, the worst moments of this life, the biggest pains, the greatest suffering, that is as bad as it will ever get. That's why Paul can say in his letter to the Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. You know, if all this life is, do you remember this line from Macbeth? Shakespeare's Macbeth. He says, you know what life is? Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. If that's all life is, then you know what? Then you need to, to just live a small, selfish life and just grab every little morsel of pleasure you can right now because before you know it, it's going to be over and this is as good as it's ever going to get. But if, as Paul has been saying here, if human history actually does have a purpose, a direction, a trajectory, if it actually is going somewhere and building up to something that will last for all of eternity, then you know what? Then the things you do here in this life, they actually matter. And you can actually make a difference with your actions right now. You can make a difference that will last for all of eternity. See, the hope of the resurrection, you know what it does? It sets you free to be generous to serve, and to give because you know why? You know that joy and pleasures and true riches await you at his hand forevermore in eternity in heaven. The hope of the resurrection gives you healthy expectations when it comes to how you relate to people and to things. You know, sometimes we can We can place sky-high expectations on people or on things, right? We can look to people and say, fill up what is lacking in me. Do it. Or we can look to things. I hope that this thing will fill up what is lacking in my heart and in my, my life. But you see, when you understand the hope of the resurrection prevents you from having sky-high expectations that no person and no things can ever meet because the hope of the resurrection helps you understand that your deepest desires, they will be met. They will be fulfilled, but not in this life. They will be fulfilled by God in heaven. And when you know that, you know what it does? It sets you free to love people and use things without using people and loving things. The hope of the resurrection gives endurance to us in the face of trials and hardships because you know that the best is yet to come and the day is coming when Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and he will set all things right. And Paul concludes this saying with an interesting part. He says this, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Why does he say this here? Well, think about it. Where did the Corinthians get this idea that there is no life after death? You think they got it uh, from reading the Bible? Right? They are just reading the Bible, and they said, you know what? Maybe there is no life after death. That's not how it happened, right? If they would have been reading the Bible, they, they would have not concluded that. Uh, did they get it from hanging out with the apostles? No. Do they get it from going to church? No. Clearly, they've been influenced, but not by the scriptures and not by the people of God. Obviously, they've been influenced by associating with Jews who didn't believe in the resurrection, like the Sadducees, or with Greek pagan philosophical types who didn't believe in the resurrection. You see, it was bad enough that by keeping company with these people, they're thinking about the resurrection had, been so mess- had become so messed up. But, but think about this. If their thinking about the resurrection had been so easily influenced, if their theology had been <clears throat> so easily influenced by this company they were holding, then they better watch out because what other ways is this bad company going to influence them? Think about this. Remember, we've, we've been studying through this book for a while. How many of the Corinthians' problems could be explained by this one verse? Evil company corrupts good habits. If the Corinthians were hanging around with pagans and unbelievers to the extent that they were influenced in their beliefs about the resurrection, life after death, then couldn't it be that maybe the source of a lot of their other problems is also this bad company they've been having? Think about the other areas that Paul's been addressing in their behaviors and their beliefs pride, immorality, greed, selfishness. It makes you wonder how much of their thinking was shaped by keeping company with people who did not encourage them in the ways of Jesus. So I want to encourage you, in general, but particularly this week, okay? I want to encourage you this week to spend time in the Word of God and with the people of God. You need both in the Word of God, and with the people of God. We have so many opportunities for you to do that here at the church. You've probably heard us talk about them a lot. But here's the thing. I hope you actually do it, and here's why. Because I hope that for you and me, rather rather than being conformed to the thinking and the mentalities of this world, as the Corinthians were, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to the will of God. So friends, the fact that Jesus resurrected, it means that in him there is hope for us beyond the grave, and this hope alone gives meaning and direction to our lives. Would you please bow your heads with me? Let's pray.
0: You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.